TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the new TED Health. I'm your host, Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Starting today, we're launching a new season of the podcast, and it's going to be a little different. After each talk, you'll hear a short reflection, a lesson, or an interview related to what you heard in the talk. And we're starting with this episode because it explores an issue I'm really passionate about. Something you may not know about me is that I've dedicated my life's work so far to transforming how our culture thinks about, talks about, and plans for the end of life. In this episode, you'll hear from designer Elaine Fong and what she learned from her mother's end-of-life experience. It can be incredibly hard to get the care you want, even at the end. I hope you'll join me after the talk to hear about why pondering our own mortality can allow us to live deeper, richer lives. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab investing themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Support for this podcast comes from The Wonderful Company. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, you probably know the pistachios that come from this company. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Get snacking and get cracking with a snack that packs a protein punch. I love the various wonderful pistachio flavors. So in addition to the original flavor, I'm particularly fond of the salt and vinegar. And I keep little packets of them in my car so that I can eat and get some protein on the run. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. What do you want to create? Where do you share this with others? And how do you want them to feel? As a brand designer, I ask a lot of questions and practice empathy to understand from people their personalities and motivations behind the why of what they do to help them express themselves. Sometimes transforming ugly moments into unique ones or turning something ordinary into something memorable. To help the face behind a brand express themselves through beautiful experiences. But what happens when the experience you've been asked to design is death and the face behind that brand is your very own mother? This was the design challenge I was faced with last year when my mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer and she asked us to support her end of life. 
For 12 years, she was in remission from a previous cancer. She had a tumor behind her ear, and this time it came back as bone cancer in one of her vertebrae. What we all thought was back pain from arthritis revealed itself to be the worst. It was the beginning of the end of her life. But first, let me tell you about my mom. She was born in China in 1948. She and her twin brother grew up in a large family. Her mother was the second wife to her father, and second wives and their children weren't viewed in the most positive light because it was just the cultural norm of the time. And growing up in communist China in the 1950s as a daughter and not a son meant that my mom was not the pride of the family, and she knew she wanted better and needed to get out. So she got tough, developed thick skin, and decided to fight for her life. She fled China to Hong Kong, and when she was 22, she married my dad, and they made their life in the United States. And she continued to fight. She was persistent, fearless. She never took no for an answer. We always said that she could charm the skin off of a snake or just whip it into a straight line. Growing up with her mom, she fought for my sisters and I to get into the best classes in school, even though they were full. She fought for a prime real estate location for my dad so he could start his own business. And as a teenager with me, we fought a lot over bad boyfriends, body piercings, punk music. It's always true when they say mom's always right. The cancer she had in 2004 gave her a preview into her death. At that time, she had endured a lot of radiation and treatments. A lot of radiation involved the side of her brain, and she never forgot how the mental and physical side effects made her feel. Overcoming that cancer was a source of pride for her, as well as traveling the world with my dad, watching all of her daughters get married, and seeing her grandbabies grow up into teenagers. Her world was filled with beautiful experiences and a lot of color, but she never talked about the shades of gray. She never talked about how that preview into her death gave her 12 years to silently prepare and brace herself for the end. This time when we gathered around her in the hospital, she had an announcement to make. She said that she did not want to do any treatments, no surgery. She was ready to go. She looked at us point blank and said that. She did not want to live life trapped to a bed, unable to feed herself, unable to use the bathroom for herself. She did not want to become a vegetable, and she wanted to exit this world knowing exactly who she was. She was adamant. In the state of Washington, where my mom lived, Death with Dignity has been in effect since 2009. And for those of you who aren't familiar, Death with Dignity is legislation that empowers individuals to decide for themselves to move on when science has confirmed the end is near. It gives individuals the legal right to decide and act for themselves to move on when faced with a terminal illness and is one of many end-of-life care options available. It was this particular end-of-life care option that my mom wanted, and she asked us to support her through this. 
We were devastated, and none of us knew what to say. So she spoke first. I want a private ceremony at home, immediate family only. This is the outfit that I want to wear, and don't spend any money on flowers. But if you do, I like yellow ones. <laughs> I want my ashes scattered on Mount Rainier, and afterwards for you all to have a dinner party. You know, nothing fancy, casual, maybe with some Southern-style food and some music. She knew exactly what she wanted. She wanted a celebration. After a lot of tears and listening, hospice came in to consult with us on next steps, and we learned that we needed signatures from two doctors in order to proceed with death with dignity. Her primary care physician said he would sign, but only if her oncologist signed off first. Her oncologist was shocked. He was so surprised that she was ready to make such a swift decision. He said, "You know, like it's stage four cancer, but you could live for another six months, maybe even longer. Don't you want to have more time to live? Don't you want to enjoy life for as long as you can?" My mom said she wanted death with dignity. This is my time. This is what I want. He told her no. We were really confused. Her cancer was confirmed. Hospice just came in and walked us through the process. As a doctor and an educated man of science, he is trained to problem-solve diseases. His expertise is to find solutions for illnesses, not to relate to my mom's personal view on life. We needed to understand where he was coming from. He was honest and said, "Look." I'm new to Washington. I just transferred here from California, where this law was recently made legal. I have never experienced this before. I need time to think about it. No, I won't sign. He looked at my sisters and I to back him up, and we looked at her mom, and she was overcome with disappointment and burst into tears. This was a woman who never took no for an answer. And after 12 years of preparing for her end, she found herself fighting again. She was fighting for her life to end, for her right to die. In hospice and palliative care, there are three main focus areas for support: comfort, spirituality, and peace. It's a testament to our society that this level of care is available, ranging from pragmatic to natural and holistic, if you can afford it. As a family, we decided to care for our mom at home, and in order to create a comfortable space for her, we needed to get creative. In the initial stages of her diagnosis. She was mobile with the help of a walker, even though she was frail. In order to get blood circulation flowing through her legs, we needed to get creative with her exercises. We decided to have fun, so we would see how many Beatles songs it would take for her to walk around the kitchen island x amount of times, all of us singing along to "Love Me Do" and "Let It Be." We watched YouTube videos to learn how to give her haircuts. And the house didn't have a shower on the main floor, 
So on the weekends, we would sneak our mom into my sister's office and use the handicap accessible shower. This deluge of hot, steaming water in my mom's body felt so amazing to her. It was one of the last little luxuries that she wished for compared to the sponge baths that we gave her. A lot of her time was spent resting in bed, and we would watch documentaries together and classic Warren Beatty movies. Sometimes she'd ask me for a mood board of beautiful images of Mount Rainier so she could look forward to where her ashes would rest. Once a month, she would see her oncologist for status updates, and it was very clear from test results that her cancer was growing. Every time she'd plead with him to have her death with dignity wish fulfilled, and he'd say no, and she'd go home disappointed. At this point, she was in a chest brace and a wheelchair because her bones could no longer support her. It's easy for us to think of design as aesthetics or creating visuals. Design is also a tool for communication, a combination of creativity and empathy. Earlier, I referred to my mom's death as a design challenge, which I know sounds strange and off-putting. It's a challenge because, for obvious reasons, but it involved design because it required us to talk about it to talk about it with her doctors and hospice and with our families to make decisions. By having the conversation, it allowed us to come together to grasp what was happening so we could have a shared language with a common goal for understanding. One night when I was sitting next to my mom, I was caressing her arm, and I noticed that the texture of her skin was unusually dry and the color of her flesh was dull. I had been so focused on executing her end-of-life wishes that I realized I didn't know what the end of her life felt like. I didn't know what she was going through because I just accepted it. So I asked her, what does it feel like? What does what feel like? Cancer? What does your cancer feel like? fire, she said. My bones are on fire and everywhere under my skin is burning and every time I move, it just makes it worse. My whole body is on fire. After a moment, she said, are you mad at me? No, why would I be mad at you? for wanting to move on, for wanting to go to heaven because it's my time. I looked her in the eye and I said, I'm really proud of you. I think you're brave. I think you're a designer like me. She perked up. She's like, oh, really? You think I'm a designer? <laughs> yes. You're creating the experience that you want to have. You're designing how you say goodbye. She took my hand and said, you understand. The next visit to her oncologist was her last one. What started as a small cluster in one vertebrae expanded throughout her spine and pushed its way forward into her sternum and her ribcage, all within four months. This time, there was no begging. 
He said, the cancer's growing really fast. She looked at him in the eye and said, I know. <laughs> two days later, she got her two signatures and signed legal documents and prescription to proceed with death with dignity. The fight was over and she won. It was actually one of the happiest days of her life. I want to be clear and say that I don't think it was wrong of the oncologist to hesitate on death with dignity. It was his responsibility to have a conversation with us, to guide us in understanding and needing us to be curious about all medical treatments that were available until it was very clear her illness was terminal. And I completely respect him for that. It was also our responsibility to have a conversation with him to guide him in understanding our mom's wishes for her end of life. He needed to be curious about that alternative as well. When it came time to fill the prescription, we learned there were two options. The first was a liquid form. Its immediate effect varied upon body type and could take anywhere from two hours to two days to go into effect. We were also informed that It can burn the throat going down, and patients have a hard time swallowing it because sometimes they have gag reflexes and it's hard for family members to watch. The cost of that medicine was $400. The second option was a pill. Its effect much faster, much easier for patients to swallow. The cost of this was $4,000. Neither recovered by insurance. Our healthcare system, policies, and regulations are intended to protect and support us. What patient scenarios and experiences are yet to be designed? What systems need to be revisited? Because at this moment, there was a lot here that could use a redesign. We were so close to bringing her peace, her dying was complicated enough. How difficult does the system need to be in order to give a patient a peaceful death? The price tag difference was eye popping for sure, but it wasn't our decision to make. This was our mom's call. She said, That's crazy. Are you kidding me? I'll take the $400 one. I'm leaving anyway. <laughs> the night before her death, We had a dinner party at her house at her request. We made a beautiful feast of roast chicken, colorful salad, strawberry shortcake, sparkling wine. We made a playlist of her favorite tunes. It was a mix of the Bee Gees, Dusty Springfield, and Elvis. We told stories, we laughed, she gave a toast. She was so happy, she was glowing the whole night. The morning of her last day, An end of life care assistant came to the house to help us through the process. As preparations were underway, I kept stealing glances at her to see how she was doing. Every time I saw her, her eyes were bright and her mouth was smiling, and she just kept giving me a thumbs up because she wanted us to feel brave. We learned there were three medications in total. The first was. To slow down her heart rate. The second was for anti nausea, and the third was her final medication. 
The assistant, before he handed her the medication, said that by law she had to declare out loud that it was her intention to go to sleep and to not wake up. By law, none of us could help her hold the cup or help her drink it. She needed to do it for herself. And he warned her that it could burn and to take her time. My mom took the cup with two hands and pounded it back like a shot of whiskey. <laughs> she looked at my dad and smiled, closed her eyes, and in 45 minutes, she was gone. I know the experience that we had is not common. For many people, they don't get the chance to say goodbye the way that we did. For some, death is full of uncertainty and can often be a waiting game. Watching our mom deteriorate wasn't easy, and neither was caring for her. There were many parts of the experience that were not beautiful, that involved the expected tubes, needles, bedpans, and fluorescent lights. Caring for her was possible because my sister Nancy took on the difficulty of moving mom into her house, and my sister Jenny is a nurse and managed her pain until the very end. In an odd way, there was a lot of comfort because we were figuring out this whole mess together. I can't imagine what it would have been like if my mom lived in a state where this was not legal. How long and how painful would it have been? And what that means for actual legislation is unknown, but what is clear is that there are a lot more people who want to have a say. All over the world, there are many cultures and families who practice their own rituals of death. These rituals are expressions based on their unique situations and environments. If you could design your own death, what would the experience be like? And how would you want it to feel? I'm not a healthcare professional, and I'm not an inventor of science. I'm a brand designer that creates experiences by connecting with human emotion. What I know from my mom's experience is that it gave us the tools to talk about death. By sharing her story with friends and strangers, I've learned there is a lot of curiosity behind this. By having the conversation, it helps us to perhaps reframe or even rebrand death from feeling scary or desolate or bleak to reimagining it as honest, noble, and brave. My mom was born a fighter, and she became a designer at the end of her life. Today, she would have turned 69 years old, and it's her birthday wish that I share her story with you. Death is a universal human experience. What I've shared with you is more than a conversation between myself and my family. It's a conversation that belongs to all of us. Patients, doctors, healthcare providers, policymakers, family members, together we all have a say in creating beautiful experiences from the very beginning, but more importantly, at the end. Thank you.
This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on fitness trends. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas that you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme as is or customize to better fit your investing goals. All in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey listeners, it's your host, Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. The talk you just heard is particularly meaningful for me because I've spent the last 10 years thinking about how we can transform the end of life into a more human-centered experience for patients, for families, for caregivers, and even for clinicians like me. I got interested in changing the status quo from the many patients I've cared for in the intensive care unit who weren't able to design their own ending. I've witnessed countless people suffering in their final days weeks, and even moments of life. And these patient stories make me realize that we could all be taking moments to reflect on our goals for living a good life for however long we have left. So why don't we? The answer is complex and specific to each life, but there's one factor common to almost everyone, and that is that in American culture, we avoid talking about death until it's already upon us. This is true for medical professionals as well as patients. In America, where I was trained and practiced medicine, it's not commonplace for doctors to talk with their patients about their illness trajectory, prognosis overall, and what trade-offs they'd be willing to make for a chance to get better. And as patients, we often leave these discussions to an acute crisis, where it's almost impossible to make a thoughtful decision for ourselves or for the people that we love. What Elaine's mother wanted was to die on her own terms. For her, the decision was clear. For most patients, it isn't so straightforward, and it often requires a thoughtful conversation between a doctor and patient, or many of them. It might be surprising to hear that most doctors actually aren't trained in how to have these kinds of conversations. A study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that 68% of doctors they surveyed said they hadn't been trained in how to have difficult conversations with patients. And a study published by the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine found that medical students often report feeling unprepared for conversations about death with patients and family members. So instead, we just default to what I call the do-everything model of care, in which we do everything possible to extend someone's life, no matter how old or frail, and no matter how unhelpful the intervention might be, unless they opt out or have someone advocating on their behalf for something different. We're so focused on quantity we lose sight of the quality of that life. As a physician, I can't share specific patient stories, 
but there's a pattern I've seen countless times. One of my patients, let's call him Mr. K, was an elderly man who suffered through repeated hospital visits over the last months of his life. Even as his health deteriorated to the point that his grown children couldn't care for him anymore. When his heart stopped in the ICU, it was our job to do everything to keep him alive. Even though he already had end-stage kidney failure, we punctured his paper-thin skin again and again, inserting intravenous lines into his blood vessels. We placed a breathing tube into his windpipe, and I began CPR. We did our job, but he still died, likely in pain and in a room full of strangers. And as he lay there still and alone in the ICU bed, curtains drawn, still attached to machines, I felt as if we'd failed him. Doing everything is the norm and the expectation in both medicine in America and in our culture at large. And it helps explain why Elaine's mother still had to fight for her right to die on her own terms, even though she lived in a state, the law that allowed her to do so. But it doesn't have to be this way. What if we could all start having honest, candid conversations about dying? Not just with our doctors, but with our families and our friends too. What if it was normal to talk about our own death? about how we'd like to die without scarring our loved ones or freaking out our friends. Mr. K had, in fact, asked that everything be done for him the first time he was hospitalized. But despite multiple subsequent visits to the hospital with kidney failure, a stroke, and worsening dementia, the question was never revisited. I wondered whether he and his family knew what everything meant. In order to design our deaths, as Elaine suggests, this is what we have to do. Talk about death. We have to make it normal to acknowledge and consider and discuss death as a part of regular conversations and shape our lives and our end-of-life plans with the reality of death in mind. We need to have, as my friend Dr. B.J. Miller says, a relationship with death. These kinds of conversations don't have to be dark or scary. In fact, they can quell the fear of dying and provide an alternative perspective that offers real compassion, hope even. I started a nonprofit conference and media platform called Endwell, dedicated to making the end of life part of life and inviting people into a conversation about solutions to make the end of life a better or maybe just less hard experience for everyone involved. If we all participate in these conversations, we can rebrand death, as Elaine put it. Here's one simple way to start it can start with a reflection today. Consider what experiences and people that you truly value most in your life, knowing that this can change over time. And now ponder, if time were short, how would you want to spend those precious moments? This thought experiment can be very powerful and allow you to take stock of what living well looks like for you, or as I like to think about it, to begin living with the end in mind, rather than avoiding it. We can all start treating death, not as a medical issue to be solved, but as a purely human issue. And perhaps by opening the door to our own mortality, we can live better every day. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Feel free to tweet at me or join the conversation at endwellproject.org or on your favorite social media channel at endwellproject. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode was produced by Transmitter Media with help from Mitchell Johnson and fact-checked by Vanessa Garcia-Woodworth. And special thanks to Anna Phelan, Sammy Case, Maria Ladius, and Colin Helms. 
I'm Shoshana Ungerleiter. Stay well, and I'll talk to you next week. Support for this show comes from Brooks. I've really gotten dinner running this year, so I have to tell you about the Ghost 16 from Brooks, because this shoe is kind of a game changer. I found the cushioning to be next level comfortable. It's incredibly soft, yet surprisingly lightweight. It's literally comfortable every time my foot hits the pavement. The Ghost 16 from Brooks isn't just a shoe for me. It's a daily boost for my runs. Visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.